Welcome to Man Reads Monday. I am Aaron Ventura. He is Jacob Rush. Let's get to work. Jacob, what are we working through today? Today we're in C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Abolition of Man, and it has an alternative title. And uh, do you know what it is? It's, it's yeah quite cumbersome here. Yep, yep. So The Abolition of Man or... This is a classic, like, Pearson. Yeah. <laughs> or Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English in the Upper Forms of Schools. And if you're wondering what the Upper Forms of Schools are, that is high school. So it's pretty much grades 9 through 12. And so right. um, this book is very short. There's, uh, in some ways, it's, um, it's just three lectures on, um, as he says, Reflections on Education. And so our plan for the next episodes, this is, this is episode 19 of Man Reads Monday. So for the next three episodes, we're going to just take it one chapter at a time. And then yeah. depending on the ver- virgin, virgin, version, <laughs> <laughs> depending on the version you have, uh, there's also an appendix um, that gives a discussion of what the Tao is, and we'll Ooh. get into we'll get into what the Tao Sounds is. Sounds Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Aaron, you gotta help us I'm, out. Yes, I'm all I'm all about that. Okay. So, uh, b- before we get into this book, let's talk a little bit about why we chose this. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you you just read that hideous strength. Yeah. I'm reading it right now. I just finished uh, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, will you situate this book for us? Yeah. Why, why do we pick this? Right. So, I think one of the best ways that you could situate it is by first just reading, setting up what this lecture is, this first chapter is going to be about, which talks about men without chests. Yeah. Uh, and his summary, and we're going to kind of get to it, is that we've arrived in a society that has sort of jettisoned this objective standard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's jettisoned any, what he's going to call the Tao, and we'll yeah. get more into that, which is a objective um, reality that exists outside of you and I yeah. that binds and um, commits and obligates everything else around us. Yep. And, so if you, and if you read, it's actually really interesting, That Hideous Strength, it's a fictional story kind of situated in the world with which Lewis is most familiar with, which is the academia, yeah. right? So colleges and the sort of, it's really funny. He, yeah. his, so many like politics and personal mm, inner ring stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so what Lewis is doing in That Hideous Strength, which is actually published a year after this, these essays were, is sort of putting in narrative form what it actually looks like when you reject that standard. Yeah. And, and, and what Lewis is tracing is how that rejection doesn't begin, right, just like with any sort of sin or compromise, it doesn't begin with this like, today we are rejecting, yeah. you know, like objective morality and, yeah. and virtue. No one announces that <laughs> like that, yeah. Right, but what he's going to show is that, again, it's reflections on education. Yeah. And so he's, this chapter is, is actually a, a critique or a, a review of a, um, a curriculum, a, a textbook yeah. uh, that they're teaching these children. And he's showing that um, this is the, the trend, the trajectory of, what, of education. Yeah. And there's being an upheaval happening. Yeah. And then what's the end result of that? What do you get? Well, and you get... Really, we'll, we'll see, um, and if you read that hideous strength, it's only intensified nowadays. You get a society with men who have snubbed virtue, who have snubbed uh, courage, who have all these sort of classical and traditional and Christian um, 
virtues. Yeah. Um, which, I, yeah, again, Lewis is, I could talk a lot about Lewis. If you go to Mere Christianity, Lewis talks about, he, he walks you through some of these virtues that are central to kind of Christianity. Yeah. And he's saying, we, we, we've gotten rid of them. We've, we've jettisoned them. And it's no wonder that we've got the kind of political setup we have today. We've got same-sex marriage, and we've got, um, you know, infidelity. Yeah. Um, and the pedophilia thing now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, because we've jettisoned this objective standard, yeah, this towel. The towel. So uh, just just to make it easy, on page 43, so this, this is in the second chapter, uh, he gives a really good definition of what he means by the talc. So if you're reading this book for the first time and you're confused and you're like, what is even <laughs> happening? Uh, he, he says on page 43, this thing which I have called for convenience, the Tao, and then here he's, he gives your kind of definition, and which others may call natural law, or traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purport to be new systems, or as they now call them, ideologies, all consist of fragments from the Tao itself, arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao, and to it alone such validity as they possess. Mm. So there's, uh, and then in the appendix, he gives you all of these, um, it's kind of like, here's the Ten Commandments from all the different kind of world Cultures. figures. Yep. He quotes, uh, you know, Cicero, ancient Chinese, uh, Analex, Roman. The Babylonian um, code. Yeah, Be Beowulf in there. Yeah. And, and then right alongside scripture. And what he's trying to just demonstrate is this fixed objective morality right. that uh, whether you think it's like the stars uh, and the motions of the moon right. or you think it's idols or some gods, yep. uh, there, there's some... Uh, transcendent universal right that somehow applies to us and our law systems our education systems our virtue the way mm. what we consider right and wrong is is man's attempt to try to cohere yeah. with the way the world actually is mm. and and he's going to say uh, starting from this education point that they are jettisoning jettisoning this tau now, um, I asked you what year this was written. We looked it up, and it's 1944. So that's when Abolition of Man was written, and then That Hideous Strength was written in 1945. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I highly recommend, if you are following along with us, to, to read That Hideous Strength. I, I've, I've got it on audiobook. I've been just listening to it as I drive around town. And um, I've read it, uh, you know, traditional uh, read it. So this is my second time yeah. through it. But I highly recommend reading it because he actually says at the beginning of that hideous strength that th that's kind of like the same thing he's doing in Abolition of Man. He's doing in a story form yeah. in that hideous strength. And it has a lot of relevance. So if you're finding yourself confused, I'd highly recommend reading that. Uh, the other piece is, as we know, whether it's Hitler or whoever saying, you know, you capture the the youth you capture yeah. education you have control right. of the future and if you think about this was written in 1944 that's about what 76 
yeah, yeah. 76 years ago or something like that, if I did my Roughly, math right. Almost, or yeah. 86. So, yeah, somewhere around there, 70 to 80 years ago. Um, if this was happening then, then we are currently living with the fruit of it. And if this hasn't changed or if this has infiltrated the, pu the public schools, or as he says, the high schools, upper schools, then we should expect more of the same that he's pointing out here and the kind of same problems you find in that hideous strength and in all the, the Space Trilogy books. So let's get into his argument about what exactly is this problem? How is it that we are creating men without chess? And what does this even mean, men without chess? So um, he starts off with uh, this discussion of an elementary textbook um, uh, and specifically this book called The Green Book. And he's a really funny quote at the beginning. He says, I do not think the authors of this book, there were two of them, intended any harm, and I owe them or their publishers good language for sending me a complimentary copy. So someone sent this book, you know, to him. I'm sure, like, Doug gets books all the time. Right. And, and so he's reviewing it, or maybe you get a, an advanced reader's copy, and then you, you review it. He says, at the same time, I shall have nothing good to, to say of them. <laughs> and then he's going to spend the rest of the book just totally demolishing. It's rather right. devastating. And you could almost think about Abolition of Man as an extended book review. Yeah. Like, that's basically what it is. But it, and it starts with this tiny little micro disagreement on the way language and feelings are described. Yep. But by the end of the book, we're talking about the most meta-universal things. Mm. So, so it's starting very small. Yep. And then these chapters are just going to expand bigger and bigger and bigger mm. as we get to the end. Uh, any other comments on th on this? Yes, I do love that he, you know, in very, it's very traditionally academic too, with like, and you know, that sort of professional, but also like politeness, where he's like. I will propose to conceal their names. Yeah. We're going to call them Gaius and Titius, yeah. and their book we're going to call The Green Book. Yeah. But I promise you, there is such a book, and I have it on my shelves. Yeah. So he's, he's very, very gentlemanly. I am about to slap you in the face <laughs> as hard as I can. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> right. Right. What is it? The quote about a uh, gentleman. Right. Um, I'm forgetting it. Sorry. Was this, about, this was this about, like, you only insult someone on purpose? Right, yep, okay. exactly. Gentlemen only insult someone on purpose. Or something yeah, like something that. like that. Uh, okay, so uh, he's going to critique this green book and, and these authors, and what, they, uh, what they're teaching, what they believe, is basically that we cannot make value judgments about right. an object, but can only describe our feelings towards it, um, as they indicate when we, quote, appear to be saying something very important about something, actually we are only saying something about our own feelings. And the example given is of Coleridge at a waterfall, which I don't really know much about. I, I kind of read a little bit. It's a Wordsworth yeah. thing. Anyways, one says, oh, this waterfall is sublime. The other person calls it beautiful or pretty. And uh, the, they're using that. Uh, famous, famous back then right. <laughs> example to talk about the sublime is not an objective right. thing about the waterfall. They're going to say, no, it's just what the, they just had sublime feelings. Mm. And, and Lewis is going to conclude that the schoolboy who's learning this is being taught uh, two things. And this is what he says on page four. He says, uh, firstly, that all sentences containing a predicate of value, saying a, a, a value statement about something, is actually a statement about the emotional state of the speaker. 
And secondly, that all such statements are unimportant. It is true that Gaius and Titius have said neither of these things in so many words. They have treated only one particular predicate of value, sublime, as a word descriptive of the speaker's emotions. The pupils are left to do for themselves the work of extending the same treatment to all predicates of value, and no slightest obstacle to such extension is placed in their way. And so he's just saying, if someone is being told that when you say something about something else, all you can, all you're doing is saying something about how you feel. Right. There's nothing fixed or objective about it. Right. And he's going to say they are, they have stepped outside of the Tao. Right. Outside of outside of objectives and universals, and they are teaching people this kind of we we might call it, this is kind of like the postmodern relativistic everything is subjective. Uh, worldview, and he also is going to kind of go precep on it and prove that that's actually impossible to do. Right. So they're setting forth something that's actually impossible, and in doing so, it is hollowing out their chest, or as he says on page nine, he says it's cutting um, out their soul. So he says uh, the results are a belief that all emotions aroused by local local associations are in themselves contrary to reason and contemptible this is the hollowing out of his chest removing the affections of the heart it is the cutting out of his soul and that, and he says that um, on page 9 right and one of the comments he says just a little bit later um, he says and again you you get this very this sort of sword play where he's like he's very politely demolishing them, but showing them just how severe this this move is. Yeah. And on page 12, he says, um, he says, I must for the moment content myself with pointing out that it is a philosophical and not a literary position. In filling their book with it, they have been unjust to the parent or headmaster who buys it, who has got the work of amateur philosophers where he expected the work of professional grammarians. Yeah. Right? They're just <laughs> highlighting that, okay, what they've actually done is they've stepped out of their domain mm -hmm. and they've not done a good job of that in the first place. Yeah. And they've introduced a alien philosophy, an alien Tao. Mm -hmm. um, and he's going to have problems with that as you keep going. Yeah. And, and so if we could just pause right here and you think, okay, what does this have to do with manhood? Yeah. What does this have to do with masculinity? Why are we talking about the Tao? And, and if you ponder that, uh, he'll make it more explicit. But if you rest... Uh, language, right? The descriptions, feelings, adjectives, um, or think about how much of our own worldview has been shaped by books. I mean, hmm. we're doing a podcast on books. We read a bunch of books. Right. And if uh, I think about, I just got a map in the mail uh, of Middle Earth that we nice. finally put on our wall, this huge map of Middle Earth. And my imagination has been shaped by Tolkien's Middle Earth. And so there's certain things that it has done to the way I see the real world, living in this, um, reading books from other places. Same thing with scripture. Right. We're being immersed in a biblical worldview where something like a mountain or a garden or a flower has some kind of significance to right. you and scripture is going to fill that with meaning. And then we, um, uh, literarily can right. also build on that. And so he's going to give an example of say a horse and, and uh, he kind of makes fun of how they say, you know, the horses are not interested in colonial expansion and doesn't comment at, at all on the, the place of a horse in the literary canon. And, and we can even think biblically, what does the Bible have to say about horses? 
do not trust in, put your trust in right. princes and horses. Horses are associated with Egypt. Horses are also beautiful. They're a symbol of conquest, of elegance. Mm. Uh, if you read the book of Judges, the judges ride not on horses, they ride on a mm. donkey. Right. When Jesus comes in as a king into Jerusalem, he's not riding on a conquering horse, he's riding on, on a mule, on, on a donkey. And so, we have a whole huge canon of associations with horse, and he's saying all they're giving them is that well, they weren't interested in, in colonial expansions. Like, okay, who cares? And, and he says on page 11, another, in doing this, another little portion of the human heritage has been quietly taken from them before they were old enough to understand. Mm. And uh, he says this, this creates what he calls trousered apes and urban blockheads. So mm. it, you can imagine the picture of an ape wearing human clothes, an ape in, in trousers. Mm. Uh, it kind of reminds you of uh, The Last Battle, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or Puzzle. The, yeah, or the urban blockhead. Mm. And, and so uh, this is going to lead into his discussion on how you train mm. feelings. Mm. So what is your emotional... Uh, sense when you encounter a horse that it's something of beauty and strength or just that man they they don't want to be used for co colonial <laughs> expansion so you're teaching kids what to think about horses right in the way you even uh, use language any, any other thoughts on yeah that? I think you, you step back a bit and you ask again what, what does that have to do with manhood what does this have to do with you know, our practical day-to-day -day lives, since it's just an academic exercise. What he's, what he's trying to demonstrate is that um, in this little shift of language or commentary about what language actually does, you, you've got two, um, two versions of the world or two pictures, two types of worlds that you could live in. Mm -hmm. In one world, um, all you, you know, the world that the Green Book is talking about, all you can ever really do is describe what's going on in your own subjective mind frame, right? So you, you can't, um, not only can you not adequately um, dis, you know, describe or touch the outside world, but you are cut off from any sense, any sort of way that you can communicate with one another. You've got a sterile world. Mm -hmm. it's, it's gray. There's no color to it. At least there's no color that sort of exists on the paint outside of your own mind, right? It's sort of like a solipsism or a, um, a relativism where all you've got is right here. In the other world, in the world that he's saying, again, he talks about the heritage that's being taken from them, what you have is you've got um, sort of a canvas of colors. And those colors uh, have meaning and they have connotations and they obligate, they, they're sort of, um, you know, you, you could, um, in all, uh, apologetics they talk about this idea of obligating belief, right? Mm -hmm. Truth. They're evocative in a certain sense. Right, and yeah. you, have to, you have to deal with it yeah. in its own terms. And he's saying that's the kind of world that w is that we live in, that's yeah. reality, and that, our and that our culture and our heritage has been built upon that has all these associations. And in this little turn of phrase, in this little way that we're training our children, we have stripped them from the world of color and we've given them this gray world. Um, I was thinking of in uh, That Hit Your Strength, one example of this is Mark. Mark is the main character, mm -hmm. and many times... Well, it depends. Jane well, could also be the main that's character. True. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Mark and Jane, they're like a, you know, a duo. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Now I've got to think about that. Um, but over and over, Luke... Luke? <laughs> Lewis? You know, John Luke. Uh, Lewis uh, talks about Mark's mind as being modern education. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that's his problem. <laughs> that's why he's so easily sort of, yeah. you know, sort of spun along is because yeah. he has he's no getting his chain yanked. Yeah, because he's yeah. got no he's got no category, um, and part of the you know, not to give any spoilers, but part of the development of the book is him sort of being intruded upon by something, this world of color, this uh, true and objective reality yeah. that he doesn't have a category for. Yeah. Uh, on page 13, Lewis uh, poses, or rather answers the question, what is the pressing educational need of the moment? So if you're writing a textbook or you're trying to ponder, okay, what what is the issues that you know plague our children today? What is the pressing educational need? People are going to answer that a lot of different ways. Yeah. Uh, you see it. So I have a book on my shelf over there called Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, and it is The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And this is a very popular book, and it is now kind of supplementary reading for teachers and instruction in the schools that is trying to uh, basically retrain people's affections or loves or hates mm -hmm. and uh, to recognize America as this just racist nation birthed and um, mm -hmm. slavery is our original sin kind of idea. And you think, what is that going to do to the children learning that? So yeah. we just, uh, Columbus Day just passed, or as, as it's now called in many places, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so, so even a figure like Columbus is now being... Uh, fought over. Right. So right now, one of the pressing educa educational needs that the left sees is they need to teach children history, a new a new history, right. a woke history, the true history. Yeah. Right. yeah, And and you're seeing things about like we need more women uh, books, books written by women. We we need uh, books written by gay people. We need books written by trans people. Right. And they're they they're falling down the critical race theory stairs, and trying and doing doing the intersectionality thing where they need representatives from each of those, and they say that is an ideal education mm. is someone that has been educated by all these different perspectives of oppressed people groups. Right. And so I'd say that's probably the the most faddish current way of education, and and he's going to point out what he thinks Gaius and Titius. Um, have misunderstood. So he says on page 13, I think they may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. Think about that. Emotional propaganda, that's, that's the main problem. They have learned from tradition that youth is sentimental, which it is. And they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. So this is this uh, aspiration for pure reason yep. over the, any other Being sensibilities. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading this book, The Conservative Mind. It's talking about uh, uh, Edmund Burke, who's this Christian statesman, and he talks about how uh, we we don't have this ability or the time to reason purely through every single thing. Yeah. And so he says, what you need is you need prejudice in, in the classic sense of prejudging. Mm. And those often just come from what societal norms are. In order to just live your life, a lot of the stuff, decisions we make are just based on prejudice in that sense, a prejudge, yeah. not this pure reason. But they want to create this animal, uh, this, this beast, this man. They think he can be reformed to be this pure reason humanistic right. being that's what they try to do in the hideous strength they're trying to yeah. fiddle with with man 
And, and then Lewis says, my own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. Um, <clears throat> the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. That's like the whole book. Yeah. Um, in a couple paragraphs right there. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about this idea of... Uh, inculcating just sentiments or as we might say training the the affections yeah um, so uh, before we get into that a little bit more do, did you want to comment on anything else from this chapter before we go into some of the, the application of it I just think that is such a like as an exp had the explanatory <laughs> power of that to see how we got to where we are today mm -hmm. um, you know, you and you can talk about the history of philosophy where you get the modernist movement and then the postmodernist movement. But you can see how, again, this that original naturalistic scientific modern push led the way to what we have now. By starving the sensibility of our pu pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandists when we come. So once yeah. you make the blank <laughs> slate, right? Once you've uh, you've made the world gray, all now you just introduce your new color palette. Yep. Right. And because the heart wants that, because, the, you know, you in one sense, um, they're going to have it's not wet, whether the affections are, you know, but which affections are going to have. Yeah. You can see how <laughs> why, why do we have a society in full, you know, raged rebellion? Um, because we took out the rug from underneath it many yeah. years ago. Yeah. So the way Lewis is going to frame it is uh, the goal of education is to discipline it is to teach and it is to bring our emotional reactions into congruity with this universal law, which he's going to call the Tao. And mm. the way that we would say it in, in totally Christian terms would be, we want to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And right. that is the, the job of a disciple. That's the job of parents. And that's all something that we are meant to be growing up into. And even um, one of the reasons why he calls it the Tao and not just this Christian concept is because uh, even other ancients, uh, right. philosophers have seen this. Aristotle is, uh, is on page 16. It says, Aristotle says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age for reflective thought comes, the pupil who has uh, been thus trained in ordinate affections or just sentiments will easily find the first principles in ethics. But to the corrupt man, they will never be visible at all, and he can make no progress in that science. So if you are stand, as he's going to say later, if you're standing outside of the Tao, if you've abandoned this pursuit of congruity um, with the natural law, then you're going to get literally everything wrong. Right. And you should basically just shut up because you don't have anything worth saying if your first principles aren't, aren't good. Right. Um, there's this other quote on page um, 19. He says this, um, I myself, here, here's an example of what he means by bringing the affections into coherence with the Tao. 
Uh, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, right? A lot of people feel that way. Because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself. Just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. There's that, that color metaphor. Mm. And because our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, therefore emotional states can be in harmony with reason. When we feel liking, when we feel liking for what ought to be approved, or out of harmony with reason, when we perceive that liking is due but cannot feel it. No emotion is in itself a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are a-logical. But they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to conform. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. So if you didn't understand what he just said, it's kind of like you go to a funeral, say, and you're like, I know I'm supposed to feel sad, but I don't feel sad. So if right. you've ever experienced like, I'm not sure how to feel, you are asking the question, what is the Tao? Yeah. What is the universal objective? Like, what am I supposed to feel? Right. And as Christians, we have a, we have a framework uh, to talk about that, to say that sin has actually affected us so that, yeah, we don't actually think things rightly mm. and we also don't feel rightly. So mm. if someone has their uh, conscience seared and they are, say, committing adultery or stealing or thinking mm. about murdering someone and they're like, where is the breaks in my heart? Right. Why is it that I find myself doing something that I swore I never would or I thought I never would? Right. Well, well, we have a way of answering that. We would say, yes, sin is deceitful. Sin is corrupted. Mm. And then we'd also say, in regeneration, we're born again, we're given a new nature, and the whole life of a disciple is now bringing those affections, both our mind and our heart, into conformity to to God's right. God's law, which is far more specific than this this Tao that he is uh, speaking right. of. Whereas I get to Lewis's point <coughs> in terms of what's the point of education, what's the goal of education, it is from a very young age, like I'm, uh, his point, uh, uh, the quote from Aristotle, the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age for reflective thought comes, the pupil who has been thus trained in ordinary affections. So imagine you've got one kind of education, the kind that the Green Book is offering, where for years and years and years they're being told, hey, there is no conformity between the outside, the reality, the objective world, and your emotions. Yeah. It's just, yeah, whatever, whatever you want. Your truth is, your, you know, yeah. uh, speak your truth. Then... Um, you should not be surprised to find rotten fruit on that tree, right? When, like you're saying, 20 years later, when the guy's got his knife and, you know, he's got the knife in his hand and he's just killed the person, yeah. there, there sh um, we should go, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because for years, he's not, that, he's not been living within the Tao. He's not been disciplined from a young age, which speaks to really the significance at, for Christians of a Christian education, yeah. of a godly education, an education where the fear of the Lord is center, yeah. right? How do you expect your child to fear the Lord when he's 18 years old? Yeah. Well, you've got to start when he's three. Yeah. Well, I, I forget if it's in this chapter or later on where he talks about, well, what is it that is going to keep you from fleeing or retreating or being cowardly in the moment of battle when it's, it's head on and yeah. you've got to hold the line? And he says, I'd rather have someone who's 
uh, over sentimental about something like, say, the Star Spangled Banner. I don't know what it would <laughs> yeah, be yeah. for him. God so save when, the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like some admiration for the flag, and you think, <clears throat> what is it that's going to keep that man from running in battle? Right. And he's like, give me the person who at least has their sentiments, however we can critique their sentimentality, right. over the man who's going to retreat because he has no uh, fixed principle to, to hold on to. And so we would want to say, yeah, we want more than the flag. We want right. good reasons for why we're right. doing it. But at least he loves something. Yeah. Right? But at least he loves something, however maybe misguided sure. or misplaced that may be. And, and patriotism is one of those uh, kind of litmus tests for this. And and if education, I think Trump recently said, you know, critical race theory is this um, anti-American mm. kind of ideology yeah. or something. And and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be, but in, in the way that it's being used, it totally Often is. Because yeah. it's training people to actually not love their country and to actually want to do things like burn the flag or, or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was saying, like, imagine, you know, imagine if, you know, China up and invaded the Pacific Northwest, yeah. and they started in Washington, yeah. right, with all the hippy-dippies and, you know, the liberals and the, the young 25-year-olds, yeah. and they're like, we're declaring war on America because of your American values. Yeah. Well, you've got to... And they think they're all Christians. Right, right. Yeah, for, right. So they'll be, you know, sadly disappointed. But then you've got those people who... I don't care about America. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna die for like if if it was hey fight for the you know fight for this country die for this. There's no roots. Yeah, you know every man for himself. Why? And so you can see like that um, that connection there. Yeah, um, I want to close with talking real practically about uh, what are some of the ways that we as men can be training our own affections and uh, the affections of those around us. And I, and I wrote a list here and so Jacob I'll, I'll walk through this list but I want you to think if you yeah, yeah. have any you want to add on there so um, what are ways we can inculcate and train our affections in accordance with with scripture um, probably the the first one I would say is just uh, well reading your Bible would, yeah. would be basic but more so than that uh, praying through the Psalms so right the Psalms are full of the full gambit of emotional experience and it te and it in some ways, the Psalms teach you how to feel. And it, and it gives you a place for lament, for great joy, for great reverence, for fear, for all kinds biblical of Biblical hatred. Yeah, bi biblical hatred. Do I not hatred. hate those who hate you? Yeah. Like, we don't pray that way. Yeah, blessed are those who dash the children right. against the rocks. So, uh, the, the Psalms are an inspired... Uh, way yeah. of training your affections, uh, and, and then even better, singing singing them. Yeah, uh, the way your uh, church has a liturgy trains your affections. So, uh, even the way people dress in church is saying something about what's happening there. So, yeah. if it's one of those churches where the pastor wears you know backwards hat and and everyone kind of can come in their jammies or kind of thing, that's saying something about what you think is is happening right there whether it's a come as you are casual kind of thing or is it more regimented so right. um, here at Christ Church uh, we believe that when we are uh, going to heaven we are assembling as God's holy army right. uh, we're mar we're uh, singing and this is this is our warfare mm. <clears throat> and so just like in any 
good military or even uh, in sports, it needs to be well regimented. So they're sitting, they're standing, there's kneeling, there's responsive readings, and those things help train our affections, and, and we include the children uh, in that. Um, other other uh, ones, uh, fellowshipping with other virtuous people. So, so hanging out with people who have their affections tuned rightly. Uh, the, probably one of the easy examples of this is like uh, you go to your friend's house and is he playing, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto? And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is the, the kind of stuff that he's watching, the kind of music he's listening to, yeah. the kind of stuff that makes your conscience feel kind of tainted and like, I don't know if like, that, yeah. that, like that's not making you more godly. Right. Well, you're you're being eroded at that point when you need to be going the other direction. Right. Um, other ways, uh, listening to preaching that is aimed at at the affections, and, and I, I'd say very few preachers actually do this well. Uh, John uh, John Piper talks about preaching for the stirring up of the affections. Mm. And so find preaching that, that does that. Um, inculcating gratitude, delight, and interest in God's creation. Uh, so this this might be a more surprising one, but we, we just talked about like a horse. Yeah. <laughs> right, so... Horses are crazy. <laughs> yeah, God, God made horses, yeah. and there's something to love and be interested. I mean, people have their whole lives, you know, taking care of horses. Right. Uh, there, there's this show... Um, called Abstract, and mm. this is a show on, on Netflix for those people who still have it. Um, <laughs> uh, this show called Abstract, and, and I really like it because they are these very well-made uh, kind of creative documentaries on people who are at the like top of the game in terms of uh, creating or designing stuff. So it's kind mm. of like a design show. Sure. And there's a guy who made uh, the Jordans, air, air, like uh, Air Jordan shoes, so mm. he designed sneakers. There's an architect... Uh, there's a guy who does like typography, creates fonts. Mm. There's like a woman who does interior design and layout and builds the kind of furniture that you'd buy at IKEA, kind of type stuff. Mm. And uh, one of the cool things about watching these people who are like totally nerds out, like experts in their field, is that like um, God created them to make the world either a more functional or beautiful place. And when I see people doing that, I think I've never really thought a lot about fonts until I met people who were really, mm. you know, designing fonts and how much work goes into it. And it's like, we're right now reading books that were used with fonts, but you've maybe never given a second thought about it. We were uh, discussing the design yeah. of, of the cover, <laughs> which some people like and some don't, but there's a, there's a font choice there. Right. Is it within the Tao? Is it yeah, not? it's within yeah. the Tao. And so I can look at this book cover. So I have the, what is this? Harper One. The, the Harper One version. It's kind of a purplish cover with a, within white. It says the abolition of man. Um, and I was complaining about how the pages, they cut them at different irregular like, lengths for yeah, this kind of more rustic feel and how I hate that because when I turn the page, uh, I often don't get the next page. I get like three pages <laughs> later, which is annoying. <laughs> but but so like even just I look at this book that we're reading and it's having an effect on on me. Mm -hmm. And and that effect, uh, if the more I am in tune with with the Tao. Yeah. I will be able to make a good uh, judgment on to say this is good, this is well done art. Yeah. It's communicating the content of what's actually in here uh, yeah. accurately or, or not. And say, yeah. yeah, this this needs to be done yeah. done better. Um, uh, 
two other two other examples are actually one other example. I was thinking about a riot and the dance. So our oh. friends at Canon Press, mm. yeah. they're doing these nature documentaries, and and I th I think about Doug. I think he writes in uh, Wordsmithy about uh, uh, bored people are boring people, right? And you're going to be a boring writer, an uninteresting writer, if you are a bored person and an un and a not interesting person. Right. And and so I give these examples of uh, that that show where it's ex uh, it's opening my world, it's making yeah. my world bigger. Uh, where now I can walk down the street and I'm looking at everything, the, what fonts are being used, the design, mm -hmm. the layout. Uh, I have this book on uh, infrastructure, so trying to understand what are these strange things in my right. city, uh, what, what do they do? Right. I think I have a little kid who's four months old who's going to grow up and point at things and wonder what that is, and I'm like, there's so much stuff that I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> why, do point, yeah, why do we have it? Yeah, why do we have that? And I re realized the other day, I want to think more like a child yeah. in that curiosity of, of the world mm. because I recognize this is the world that, that God made. Yeah. And when you have that gratitude and interest and appreciation for it, it starts training your sensibilities mm. to, be, to be a learner and, uh, and to be really a more joyful person. Right? Mm. A grateful person is a joyful person. And if you are the person that looks at the waterfall and just and all you can conclude is that I have sublime feelings about it <laughs> and, and nothing more or a, or a horse and say all I find is that they don't want colonial expansion. Right. Like that's depressing. Yeah. And we wonder why people are turning to all these other vices. Yeah. Well, I would too if I lived in this depressing black and white uh, colorless yeah. world. Because there's nothing worth fighting for, right? If, oh, that waterfall gives me sublime feelings, you hate it, yeah. right? This beautiful thing, which we would want to say is an objectively beautiful thing, um, it makes it nothing worth fighting for. If it's yeah. just, if there's no conformity to an outside standard. Yeah. Um, do you have any, do you have one more? That's all of them. Uh, well, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I think one of the Another way is just practical. Okay, is um, it's sort of the design of a liberal arts education, right? Is to sort of um, inculcate you from an early, from an early age, yeah. uh, to uh, the great, the tradition, the um, sort of years of people, teachers who came before you, who attested to the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, within that, there's going to be errors, there are going to be, you know, excesses on other sides, but that's, again, the point of a Christian liberal arts education yeah. is you've got God's perfect and holy and righteous law. Yeah. So you're able to discriminate and make judgments between, okay, here, here's where, you know, uh, Homer really got something right about the world. You know, yeah. uh, Don with, you know, uh, with the rosy red fingers come over the, the waves, right? How he describes mm -hmm. the, the sea. It's like, oh, that's really, like, perceptive. Yeah. Oh, you know, idolatry, not so good. Yeah. Um, so I think one other practical thing, and so even if you're not in college or you didn't get a classical Christian education or anything like that, there are still ways in which you could throw yourself back into yeah. that. Read old books. Yeah. Lewis has an essay where he talks about um, why we must read old books. Yeah. And he talks about um, reading books that are 500,000 years old 
have the effect of a like a this clear sea breeze that yeah. blows through your mind yep. because we live you know in our little pocket in our bubble and when we aren't engaged with our past and we're and we're not engaged with what other people said other people who also lived within yeah. the same universe yeah. and had and had god speaking to them and their own personal said recognition of the true and the good yeah. then we're going to be lost without a guide so that would be i think just another one you know Find find some poetry. Yeah. Like go read George Herbert. Yeah. Uh, like go f go go pick up something classical, even if it's hard. Yeah. But like, put your mind to it and find ways to um, give you that um, that teaching that um, push in that direction. Yeah, totally. That's one of the fun things about reading, and one of the fun things about reading Lewis. Lewis is one of those people who constantly refreshes me and makes me want to want things. Uh, you know, to yeah. even be more reflective in how my emotional responses are mm. to things that happen in the world. And I, I have to ask myself, yeah, is, is my uh, head running and governing my heart? And is, do I have the mind of Christ or are my emotions running somewhere that they shouldn't? Right. And, and the reason why we have a out of control world is because men are out of control. They lack self-control. They lack right. discipline. And the first place we all have to start is in disciplining ourselves, yeah. uh, being uh, self-controlled, which only can happen with the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, that's episode 19, chapter one of the abolition of man. Jacob, what should people do this week? Well, <laughs> whatever people do this week, they need to. Oh, there it is. Get wisdom, build that house, and rule your belly. Rule that big fat belly. <laughs> All right, peace. <laughs>